Tonight we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 9. If you guys want to open your Bibles to Ezekiel 9, it's only 11 verses. I'm going to try my hardest to finish early so I can go to in and out afterwards, but we'll see how that works. Um, the study is entitled The Birthmarks of a Believer. And so, you know, it's kind of cool thinking about when you're born. Some of you guys, uh, we have these birthmarks. And for us as uh, believers, uh, there are certain things that I think we're going to see today that kind of goes with the study that uh, we need to look for, like whether or not we're truly a believer. And so most of you guys probably know the context to Ezekiel, but just in case there's someone out there who doesn't, you know, it's good to know like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and when these guys ministered. This guy Ezekiel is an interesting character. But understand that he's ministering uh, to the Jews, but he's actually in captivity in Babylon. Uh, He was taken under the second siege over there, and he's still trying to warn the people before it's too late. That's basically what's going on. He's warning them, and about five years later, Jerusalem would be judged because they didn't listen to his words of warning. And so one of the interesting things about the Lord, let's just say, you know, for those of you who have kids, let's just say your kids are messing up or there's someone that you want to discipline and you just say, you know what, I'm on my way and I'm going to clean house. I'm going to give you a thangaso. I'm going to give you a spanking. I'm going to discipline you. And then you're like, you know, that's your, the parent's mindset. And then the kids all, no, 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 I'll change. I'll change. I'll, 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 I'll do what you told me to do. You know, nine out of 10 parents would say, okay, then I won't do it after all right? So that's kind of what's going on with Ezekiel. The Lord is saying, this is what's going to happen. Judgment's on its way. But if the people would have repented when they heard that message, God would have relented. God would have shown grace. That's the way it is. And so, you know, for you, for me, I I know that God warns me and uh, he does that because he loves me. You know, he has this amazing plan for my life and he wants me to, to live in that, but I, I have to make sure that I don't live in persistent, consistent, insistent sin, that I, that I do my best to follow him. And so one of the things that we're going to see stands out here is what we look for when all this crazy chaos and abominations are taking place, which is really the world that we live in today, you know? So, so notice what you read here in Ezekiel 9 in verse 1, it says, then he... And if you have a uh, New King James is a capital H, right? So that's in reference to God. And then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One among them was clothed with linen And had a writer's ink horn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. And so you might remember that Ezekiel has been transferred in a vision over to Jerusalem. So he goes from Babylon and he's over in Jerusalem. And as he's there, probably not literally, not physically, but as he's there spiritually, here he's standing in the temple's inner courtyard not just bummed over the sin, but man, he's brokenhearted over the abominations that are going on there. And so the Lord announces with a loud voice, um, 
he calls those who had charge over the city. Now, now keep in mind, this is the city of Jerusalem. And he identifies six men. Um, and, and as you look at this, uh, in hindsight and in foresight, we're going to see that these are not men. These are angels. So God is calling these angels who are in charge of the city of Jerusalem. And so right off the bat, just real quick, we're reminded of a couple of things. Number one, when you read the Bible, typically angels appear uh, in the appearance of men. So we see that time and time again. Even though they're not men, even though when you see them in heaven, man, they got these angel, I mean, these wings, and they're just glorious creatures. But um, on earth, they, they look like men. And then number two, um, this is interesting. Angels, both good and bad, are sometimes assigned geographical territories. If you read Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, you have a demon who was the one that was focusing on Persia, which is modern-day Iran. And then if you read Daniel chapter 10, verse 20, you have the prince of Greece. And then in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it talks about Michael, the archangel, and he's the one that's assigned Israel. And so, you know, all that, you know, uh, other places, or for example, Isaiah 14, Mark chapter 5, verse 10, we find that, I don't know if you guys ever thought about this, but angels and demons assigned geographical locations. Like there's a, I don't know, and it makes sense if you think about it, huh? Because even humankind is organized, you know? Who's over the United States of America? You know, who's over California? Who's over El Monte? You name it. And so if that's the way it in the, is in the kingdom of men, it's also the way it is in the kingdom of angels and demons. And uh, not to get weird or anything, but even you might be here today and you're thinking, man, my house is haunted, you know? You guys have, any of you guys have haunted houses? <laughs> You know, um, just to let you know, from a biblical perspective, we don't believe uh, that in ghosts. We don't believe in human spirits that are kicking it, you know, staying here. But we do believe in angels and demons. And there might be some assigned to your house or your neighborhood. That, I mean, it just makes sense to me that there is geographical responsibilities, even in that realm, and so here we see the Lord calls these six angels who are in charge of, in one sense, uh, things going on there in Jerusalem. This is a quick side note. Uh, over in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 13, the Lord identified Pergam, Pergamum as a place where Satan's throne was. And we see similar things regarding Smyrna there in Revelation, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And so anyways, um, Ezekiel hears God call these particular angels near and they draw near. They have their deadly weapons, which turn out to be battle axes. But then as he draws the six close, there's one among them that appears to be dressed differently. It says here that he was clothed in linen. Now, uh, according to Exodus 28, the priests were clothed in linen, and according to Daniel 10, verse 5, and Daniel 12, 6 through 7, glorious angels are clothed in linen. And so, you know, for us, you know, we, we have so much material nowadays, we don't think it's a big deal. But, but to them, it was significant. Um, it was usually linked directly with those involved in divine service. And so this one angel is dressed differently. He doesn't have the 
army garb on, so to speak. He's got linen on. And the linen clothing suggested dignity and purity and uh, even, in one sense, uh, divine responsibility. And so you wonder, you're like, well, why was this one dressed differently? And uh, is it because it was a fashion statement? No, it was because he had a different responsibility, right? You guys know how it is. Someone has a uniform on. This is what they do. You can tell by the way they're dressed, right? This one didn't have a battle axe in his hand like the other six did. This one had a, a writing kit in his hand. And this word right here uh, in the Egyptian culture was a, a word that meant uh, a case for carrying reed pins and there was an ink horn attached. And so the, the Lord's there, you know, crazy abominations going on in Jerusalem. He calls the six with the battle axe and the one with an ink horn. And he says here in verse three of chapter nine, it says, now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And so Ezekiel kind of puts a little detail right here that's important for us to understand. You know, you guys know who you are in Christ. Do you guys know that you are the temple of God and that he lives in you? I mean, isn't that amazing to, to think, you know, that, that God is inside of you? But what if I were to tell you that God might leave you, that God would depart? Well, in one sense, this is what was going on in Jerusalem. This is what uh, Ezekiel says. I mean, I'm not just messing around here. I'm not talking about something insignificant. Where would I be? And I was talking to the Lord today about this because I've been saved now for, for a long time. But without him, you know, where would I be? Like if he left me, thank God, you know, he said he would promise, he promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But what if I leave or forsake him? He said, I'll never allow anyone to, you know, snatch you out of my hand. But what if I jump out of his hand? You know, when you read the Bible, there's things that, that seem to indicate that an individual can walk away from the Lord. And so all I know is that right here in verse three, the, the glory of the God of Israel, it, it, it split. It gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. So the, the cherub, you might remember, is the one that was in the ark of, uh, on the Ark of the Covenant in the holiest place. You had the temple, you know, where the holy place and then in the holiest of holies. And then there was this Ark of the Covenant. And in the middle was the mercy seat. And on each side of the Ark of the Covenant, you had the cherub on this side and the cherub on this side. Now, in the Ark of the Covenant, which was there in the temple in the holiest place, that's where the, 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 the high priest would come once a year and he would sprinkle it with the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur. So that was, it was a, a, a trippy place, the mercy seat. And it was also seen as the throne of God. And so... You know, what he's saying right here, where it gone up from the cherub, is saying that the glory of God was, was leaving the temple, and now it's at the threshold. So the threshold is right there at, at the door, like saying, I'm, I'm going to leave. That's what was going on there in this setting. You know, the Lord vividly demonstrates his readiness to judge by withdrawing his glory from his people. God's glory moved from the most holy place to the entry of the temple to assign now the tasks of judgment. 
And something similar had happened back in the time of the judges in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 21. Uh, there was a child that was born. Mom died when the child was born. It was all happening at a crazy time when God was actually, you know, leaving uh, for a season Israel. And they named the child Ichabod. And Ichabod means the glory has departed. And you see it, and it just breaks your heart. Because sometimes it happens to people. People who at one time were in love with God. People who at one time were anointed by God. You know, sometimes it happens to churches. You know, a church that God was using in such a great and mighty way. But, you know, somehow sin entered in. And it took over and God had to move on. And, you know, sometimes it happens in denominations. You know, it started off as a movement of the spirit and then it became a monument. Next thing you know, it became a machine and God had to leave. And so this is what's going on right here. Um, God's calling these angels. You know, you got the six with the battle axe. You got the one with the ink horn. And then as, you know, this is all happening, God is showing us, God is telling me, Ezekiel's telling us that the, the glory of God is now over there all the way to the threshold. We're going to see later in chapter 10 that he goes and, and he leaves. And for a season, we're going to see that's what happens. So we read in, in verse 3, as we continue that verse, it says, and he, and he called to the man clothed with linen, who had the writer's ink horn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Oh, so that's what the angel's going to do with the ink horn. You know, I thought he was just going to write a letter or something, right? No, he's actually going to brand people. He's going to Tattoo people, right? A certain people right there, boom, on their foreheads. I don't want to embarrass anyone or sound dorky or anything, but, you know, when you get like a, something on your forehead, pimple on your forehead, something like that, I mean, everybody is just right there in the open. Everybody can see it, right? And it's like the Lord is saying, that's what you need to do to these people. Um, you can't miss it. You know, in those days, we don't see that happening much today. But remember, like, for example, you know, when you look at history, we're talking about millions of slaves. During the Roman Empire alone, there were 60 million slaves. And they all had marks on them. They all had brandings on them. This is what he's talking about. This is an illusion, one guy said, to the ancient everywhere used custom of setting marks on servants and slaves to distinguish them from others. It was also common for the worshipers of particular idols to have their idol mark upon their foreheads and arms. And so basically what we see is this was God marking his people. Now, and we see God marking people in the past. For example, Genesis chapter 4, verse 15, Cain was marked, don't let anyone touch him. If you read Revelation 7, 3 through 4, it says, don't harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And so God... Believe it or not, he, he does that, right? 
And so in this case, as the angel is about to go out and mark a certain people with God's mark, the question is, well, what was the determining factor? What was it from a practical sense? How would the marker, so to speak, know who to mark? And, and we have the answer in our text. It's those in the city who cried and sighed over sin. Those in the city who were grieved and lamented over all the detestable things that were going on in their city. You know, and that's a heavy thought if you think about it. You know, it makes me even search my heart. Like when you see all the evil going on in the world today, if I could just ask you, um, what, what do you do? You know, do you look down at those sinners, all their, you know, terrible sinners, horrible sinners? You know, you got to be careful. I, I, I think I see that spirit sometimes in the church. And I don't think that's the heart of God. I, I think God weeps when he sees that. It breaks his heart when he sees that. You know, what's my reaction to the evil in the world today? Are you afraid? Is it fears or, or tears? Do, am, I, am I there asking why or do I sigh? Do I tell them how bad they are and how they're going to reap? Or do I weep? Now, I'm not saying you can't point out things. You can, but I will say this. Before you do, maybe you should make sure you cry. And you pray and you weep over these things. Because when I look at it right here, I'm like, wow, Lord, that was the determining factor. The ones that would receive the mark uh, as far as who, are, who belong to you would be the ones who cry and sigh over the abominations that were taking place in that day. You know, and we have to understand this is God's heart. Again, don't get me wrong. There's a place for putting evildoers in their place for their sin. But I think first it would be good for me before I, I rebuke that person, let me ask, maybe God would say, well, first weep for them. Pray for them. And not just, you know, them. I mean, what we see, the, the sins are. You know, I, I, I don't know if there's anyone here that when you got saved, you wept. Now, I, I was thinking about that because I know that when I got saved, I went forward on the altar call and I just could not stop crying. Could not. And maybe you're here and you're like, yeah, Manny, you always cry. <laughs> All I can say is there was nothing like that day. I was just weeping, weeping. And as I was reading my text this, today, I was like, Lord, was that why I was weeping? I, I don't know. I mean, part of you is like, well, why am I weeping like this? You know, is it because I'm happy because the burden's lifted? Or is it because this is the way that I should weep over my sin? I, I see this in Ezekiel and it just hits me hard. You know, Psalm 119, 136, it says, Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. You know, this may be more important than we realize. Here in Ezekiel, everyone was divided in only two camps. Those who cried and sighed over the abominations and those who didn't. 
You know, over in the, the, the Beatitudes, I, I love what the Bible says. It says, uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Before that, it says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, you know? And, and basically just realizing, like, man, I, I'm, I, I got sin, I'm messed up, I failed. You know, uh, you're not one of those out there who says you're the greatest thing. You know, since sliced bread, you know, you're the, you got it all together. If everyone was only like me, sometimes people have that mentality about themselves because for whatever reason, they're blind to their own sin. And it's better for us to be, you know, poor in spirit, to be humble, to realize our need for our savior. And then when we see the sin, God shows us his holiness, his beauty, his light, his sinlessness. And then our wickedness, we, we weep. You know, I love this story in, in Luke chapter 7. I was wondering if you guys could turn there. Luke chapter 7, notice verse 36. It says, then one of the Pharisees asked him, speaking of Jesus, to eat with him. Now, keep in mind, the Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. You know, they're like, you know, if I could just say this, the pastors and priests and those in spiritual positions, right? And so he asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. She's just weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. Now the women with the long hair, the the hair was their glory. That was like their glory. And so here she is, this woman who's a sinner, and you guys know what that means, right? Today's uh, word would be a, a sexual slave. Uh, she's out there. Um, she's a sinner. Everybody knows that she's got that reputation, but she hears Jesus is here at the pastor's house, at the Pharisee's house, and she just makes her way in uninvited, and she just fa- falls at his feet, and, and with her tears and her hair, she begins to wash, wash his feet kiss his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself. He's now, he's just talking to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. You know, and it just, I just trip out on how far these guys had drifted from the heart of God. You know, they had come to that place where they could not even reach out and touch a leper or someone who was a sinner. And so this guy right here is criticizing Jesus for allowing the woman to wash his feet with her tears and hair and ointment. And Jesus answered in verse 40. He, you know, he heard his thoughts, just in case you didn't know. He knows what you're thinking. (laughs) He said, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 
And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Now, a denarii was typically a day's wages. And so you can kind of get an idea. Uh, it was a large amount. You know, we're talking, I don't know, maybe uh, $100,000, you know. And, and then fifth, what, what can you make in 50 days? You know, that's just maybe 5000 I don't know. And, and, and so that's the big thing. And so when they had nothing with which to pay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. And then he turned to the woman. So he's looking at her now. And he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, and now this is God speaking, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. He tells the girl, the most wonderful words that anyone could ever hear from the lips of our Lord, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with them began to say to themselves, who is this who can even, who even forgives sins? And of course we know it's God. And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, you know, you look at them and you think, well, is it because, you know, her sins were greater than, you know, the Pharisees' sins? No. Sin is sin. Sin is, is, is an infinite offense, partially because of what we do, but primarily because of who we do it against. And so uh, a liar won't inherit the kingdom of God. A covetous person won't inherit the kingdom of God. You know, a sexually immoral person won't inherit the kingdom of God. It's, it's equal, right? But what the problem with the Pharisees is that they were not in tune with their pride. They were not in tune with their sins. And therefore, um, you know, they, they didn't have this, this heart of, 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 of gratitude that would bring them to a place of weeping over their sins. But she did. And, and and you have to ask yourself, and I have to ask myself, do you weep over your sins? Do you weep over the sins in the world today? You know, for us, it's important as we're looking at Ezekiel chapter 9, you know, in the Old Testament, we have these messages that are given to us in, in, in visuals. And God says, there's only two types of people in the world. Those who are marked by me and those who are not marked by me. Those who are marked will avoid judgment. Those who are not marked will be judged. And those who are marked are just those who sigh and cry over sin. You know, back in, in Ezekiel 9, David Guzik said the remnant was those who had broken hearts over their idolatry and, and wickedness of the city. One guy uh, said, let us mourn in times of sinning so we shall be marked in times of punishing. 
F.B. Meyer said, amid scenes of judgment, whether in the church or the world, there's always a remnant upon whom is the mark. We have Lot in Sodom, Israel amid the plagues of Egypt, Rahab in the fall of Jericho, and the 144,000 at the Great Tribulation. They are safe amid the fire indignation which devours the adversaries. And so in Ezekiel 9, I'm just going to read in verse 1 again. Then he, he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north. This is where the Babylonians would come, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's ink horn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Bronze was always symbolic of judgment. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called the man clothed with linen who had the writer's ink horn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. And so here's something interesting. I don't know if you guys uh, you know, are, are going to be as fascinated with it as I was, but what was the mark? Like, what do you think the mark was? Was it a check mark? <laughs> you know, I, so here's something pretty cool. In, in the Hebrew, it's the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and that is the word tav, tav. Now, if you were to look at this, we have a little chart right here. Modern day Hebrew is right here, this last one to my right. And uh, this is the word Tav. And um, you see it down here. This is what it looks like nowadays. If you put the dot in it, now that's for those who don't really know Hebrew. And so it kind of tells you uh, how to read it for those who don't know Hebrew, how to pronounce it. Um, but, you know, so that's what it looks like in the manuscripts. That's what we see here. But, you know, if you look over the ages, early Hebrew, this is what it looked like. This was the letter used for Mark in the Hebrew text that Ezekiel here wrote. He said, go and mark them with that Hebrew letter Tav. It's the last letter in the alphabet. And, and what he did on each forehead was he put a cross on every single one who sighed and cried over sin. And what we see, the Lord here, just again, when you read the Old Testament, when you read the scriptures, when you really just dig just a little bit, you get to see these beautiful, wonderful glimpses of the glorious cross of Jesus Christ. Because that's really, you know, for us, you know, when we think about the Passover and they would put the blood on the doorposts and the lintels, what's that? That's a cross. You know, we see it throughout the Old Testament. We see it over and over again. You know, what will protect me from judgment is going to be the blood of Jesus Christ as I weep over my sins. See, the problem with the world today that it just breaks your heart is they don't realize that they're sinners in need of a savior. You know, I thank God that I do. I know I'm messed up and I need Jesus 
and see, like one guy used to say, it's not going to be a sin issue, it's going to be a son issue because once we give our life to Christ, you know, Jesus loved you, he died for you, he rose again. Give him your heart, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he comes and he kind of like marks your forehead so that everyone could see, God will see, the angels will see that you're one of his. That's what I would call the birthmark of a believer. And so he talks to the one with the ink horn. But then in verse 5, it says to the others, he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. You know, you see all the crazy things going on in the world today, you guys? We should weep over sin. And we should weep over the judgment of sinners. Because this right here, what we're reading right here, it happened to the the Jews in in Babylon. And it's going to happen again in the future. You know, what we find in verse 6 here, it says that judgment would begin in God's sanctuary. You know, and it's interesting to me, in the sanctuary, God should have been most honored. There he was most dishonored and provoked. And there his holiness would most fully and certainly be vindicated. You see, guys, this place right here called church is supposed to be a place of love. It's supposed to be a place where we show grace. It's supposed to be a place where we represent Jesus Christ. You know, we're not, you know, any better than anyone else except for the fact that we have placed our faith in Christ and now we're, you know, we're pardoned, we're forgiven. The most horrible thing in the world is when we, who claim to be Christians, misrepresent him. And that's why, you know, God says, I've seen those. We saw it last year, uh, last week in chapter 8. Certain of these leaders and elders that were living in secret sin. God said, they didn't love my people. They didn't pray for my people. They didn't, they were not an example for my people. They misrepresented me to my people. So, so when judgment comes, start with them. It begins in the house of the Lord. We see the same thing in, in, in the New Testament. First Peter 4.17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. So it begins there. But he says, if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So it starts with the posers and pretenders and all the people who came to church but didn't come to Christ. All the people who served in ministry, but they never really served God. God sees that. This is why it's so important that, you know, we were really sincerely here in this serving the Lord, right? To whom much is given, much more will be required, right? It's a, it's a heavy warning to those of us who attend church who know better, but it's also a heavy warning to everyone else. You know, God has been long-suffering. God has been patient, but... You know, when I see what's going on in the world today, and I'm not saying that tomorrow is going to be the day, but it could be before then. And you know, his return, the rapture, the judgment, the signs of the, of the times that we're living in today, we see it everywhere. 
You know, what's going on in Israel today, in the Gaza Strip, in China, in Iran, Russia, everything. It's all part of what God said would happen right before his return. And so it's a, it's a warning for us. Proverbs 11.31 says, if the, if the righteous receive their due on earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? And it's not just the temple like I said earlier, it begins with the, the leaders there. Look what it says in, again in verse 6. So, so they began with the elders who were before the temple. Those were the ones, remember last week we read about it. They were in the front worshiping the sun. He, he said to them, defile the temple, fill the courts with the slain, go out. And they went out and killed in the city. And so here we see um, these guys living in secret sin. God saw everything. It was all naked before him. And so he told the executioners to start with them, to the Jew. Uh, One of the most horrendous uh, forms of defilement was a, a dead body. And so God says, go ahead and defile my sanctuary with all those dead bodies. Oh, what a heavy responsibility we who are leaders have. James chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. We'll receive a stricter judgment because of the things that we speak and because of the way that we live. And so that's why God says, start with these guys. They forgot who they were. They forgot what their responsibility was. They were in it as, as leaders for themselves. And God says, this is where you begin. And so in, in verse 8, it says, so it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone and I fell on my face, Ezekiel said, and cried out and said, ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? And, and of course not, but it looked like it. God had just told them, I'm I'm, going to mark the ones that are going to be spared. But when Ezekiel was looking around, it was looking like, man, everybody's dying. And 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 that's why, you know, you might read Ezekiel or or whoever these guys are, you know, and you might think, well, they don't, they just, they just want God's hammer to fall. They just want God's judgment to come. But no, here Ezekiel says, you know, I've got a hard message of judgment to share. But Lord, when I see it, it just devastates me. And I think Ezekiel was brokenhearted because, you know, God is brokenhearted. You might wonder, well, then why does God judge? Why can't he just let everybody, you know, go to heaven? Because he's a holy God. If he allowed sin in, if he allowed those people to go away, go in without any type of justice, then that would violate his overriding attribute. You see, his overriding attribute, his dominant attribute, you might think it's love. Love is, you know, a huge part of who God is. But his overriding attribute is holiness. And this is why he gave his son, so that none would perish. But those who reject the provision that he's provided, these are the things that we see will take place. God doesn't like it to, to, to judge the people. In Ezekiel thirty three eleven. later we're going to see, he says, say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. 
Turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? You know, I trip out, you guys. I mean, you know, I'm going to just give you guys a big hug and just say, man, I'm so proud of you for coming out of midweek service. And I think you get extra bonus points because you drove in the rain and it's going to rain later. Don't you think you get more points for that? Some of you guys, you don't live right around the corner either. You know, drove from a distance. And so, you know, I'll bet you almost anything that there is, like for the most part, you know, a group of people here tonight who love God. You really love God. None of us are perfect, but that's where your heart is. But there might be one person or, or two or someone watching online and you know that you're not living the life. You're not even really interested too much in it for whatever reason. You're, you think you can hide your sin. You know, the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, it means strengthened by God. So what I would encourage you to do is just come to the Lord the way that you are. Don't try to clean up your life first because you can't do it. Come to him and let him clean up your life and let him strengthen your life. That's what these words are, are all about so that we would turn from our sins. Because I tell you what, if you're sitting in these studies week after week and um, you're, you're not interested in, in, in living anything according to God's will, then you're heaping up greater judgment upon your life. And so we read in verse 9 that he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed, and the city full of perversity. You know, and you think about all the blood that's being shed even now. Of course, back then as well, but we're talking about homicide and, you know, murder and all these shootings. And, you know, you think of uh, the the slaughter of innocent children, the wars that are taking place. Lord, please end these wars and the genocides in the past, the weapons of mass destruction, all these things that we see, the perversity in every way imaginable. Our heart aches at what we see going on today. And, you know, um, here we are as a church and we're only trying to share with the world, you know, that that's not, the, the family that God invented, that, you know, God really is interested in the nuclear family with a mom and a dad and the kids and the boy and the girl. It really is, you know, God's intention. And, and yet, when we say anything, you know, they'll, they might refer to us as haters. We don't hate the, the ones that call us haters, though we love them. We just keep loving them. But I read a quote uh, this week, and it, it kind of explains where we're at. This guy, Dwight uh, Long Longnecker, Longnecker, this is what he says. He says, first we overlook evil, then we permit evil, then we legalize evil, then we promote evil, then we celebrate evil, then we persecute those who still call it evil. And that's where we're headed, you guys. I pray that we would know the, the, the reason for the judgment here was the idolatry, was the abominations, was, you know, the perversities that were taking place, the bloodshed that was taking place. And I pray that we would just, Lord, please do a work in us. Like I said earlier, I think God is using your life. I, I tend to be an optimistic person. Lord, I, I, I hope you save the city of Almani. 
This is where we're at. And I hope you begin to save the surrounding areas one life at a time, maybe more. So this is what's going on. Look what they say in verse 9. For, for they say, the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. Does the Lord see everything? Yeah, earlier we read about him even knowing our thoughts. He can see, so we need to live with an understanding. It's a life-changing truth when we understand God's omniscience. Verse 10 says, And as for me also, my eye will neither spare nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. And so the day will come when the long-suffering of the Lord will suffer no longer. So as this all happens, just then it says, The man clothed with linen who had the ink horn at his side reported back and said, Mission accomplished. I have done as you commanded me. And so what we find here is the angel finishes the job. They always do. And then you guys know in five years, the Babylonians would come. And all this heartache would take place. So we live in a world where, you know, there's certain things that we can't prevent. There's certain heartaches that we cannot prevent, but there's some that we can. And this is what we see here, that God is warning me. He's warning you in his love. And he's just saying, as you place your faith in Christ, then right there, plastado on your forehead. (laughs) You got the Hebrew letter. Do you know what the Hebrew letter is? Tav. The last letter of the Hebrew uh, alphabet in Ezekiel's time, it was a cross where Jesus Christ died for our sin. Man, the Savior of the world. Is, is Jesus awesome or what? He is awesome, man. So my encouragement to you is to know who you are in Christ. Uh, Paul said, I'm not going to boast about anything else except for the cross. <laughs> and then when he went to Corinth, he says, I'm not going to preach anything else except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so you keep preaching the cross. You know, to the, the intellectual people, they, they think it's foolishness. Uh, to the religious people, they, it's a stumbling block. They think it's too easy. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God unto salvation. You know, and I just pray, you know, that If you're here today and you have not yet given your life to Christ, that today would be the day. He loves you. Um, He knows what you're going through. The Bible says that every single tear you cry, he puts in a bottle. He knows how many hairs you have. He knows when you sit, when you rise up, and everything in between. And he died for you on that cross. So I pray, if there's anyone here today who has not yet received Christ, that you would... Make that decision to follow him.